This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. For those of you that listened to the first hour of our show, uh, this is not Cade Massey. Kate had to step away for the rest of the show. He had to run out and make some bets. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we knew which ones he's going to bet on. But, uh, of course, that's why there's four of us. So some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, who's here with me, and, of course, Kate Massey and Adi Weiner here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Um, we're actually thrilled to have our next guest, one of our colleagues, Aton Green. Um, Aton is an assistant professor of operations, information, and decisions here at the Wharton School. His research focuses on judgment and decision making among experts, which is actually an interesting twist because I, you know, we have a lot. I'm a marketing professor, and we have a lot of people that do judgment decision making, but usually it's among less expert populations. Um, and of course, if you want to join the conversation, and we're going to have lots of questions for Aton, but you can ask Aton questions as well. Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So, Aton, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, uh, first, uh, could you just tell us um, about your background? That's the first part. Like, what got you here to the Wharton School? What was your undergraduate degree in? What was your PhD in? And what did you study in those? Yeah. So, I've had a kind of a winding path. I was a, a major in urban studies actually at Brown University. So, wow. something a little bit odd. I didn't realize that I wanted to do a PhD in social science thereafter. Um, ended up at Stanford for my graduate work and kind of cycled around doing a lot of CS and eventually some economics, got involved in a behavioral economics crowd, um, and got this job eventually. So I'm here. Well, that sounds sounds interesting. And certainly, I think you would agree that um, – well, first, could you tell our fans – I think some of our fans have an idea of what economists do. Could you use the word behavioral economists? What does that mean to you, and how do people think of behavioral economists? I mean, is it people that kind of look at – deviations from normative behavior, like, you know, a rational economic agent would do X if we make some set of assumptions, and we can use math and say, this is what the prediction is, and a behavioral economist says, well, sometimes people don't behave according to these rational economic models, or do I have it wrong? Yeah, no, I think that's about correct. You know, one thing that's super interesting about behavioral economics is that whereas most fields are defined by the question, so you're a labor economist if you're interested in any question about you know wages or employment. Uh, you're a behavioral economist and if you find evidence uh, that people behave in ways that contradict standard models. And so it's a, it's a little bit odd in the fact that most behavioral economists are defined by the outcome, by the result of their inquiry rather than the question. Do you think that your whole field has been, not that it wasn't legitimized, but it, that it's been more legitimized by obviously Kahneman and Tversky winning the Nobel Prize and, of course, just recently Dick Thaler? Um, do you think that that's kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say that behavioral economics hasn't been a legitimate field for 30 or 40 years, but we know there's always a pushback from the traditional economists. Um, have, do you think that the Nobel Prize winning work that's coming out of people that, you know, you must, well, Tversky, I don't think any of us knew him personally because he's been dead for a long time, but do you think the Nobel Prize winning work of recent people in behavioral economics has kind of increased the cachet or excitement around the field? Yeah, I mean, it certainly impacted me. So I, I named my son after Amos Tversky in part. So his his name is Amos. Oh. Uh, but more generally, um, yes, uh, of course, if you win multiple Nobel Prizes, and you can even include people like Robert Schiller in the mix, it's it's certainly legitimized the enterprise. Um, one interesting thing, you know, when, when Thaler and a bunch of his 
peers uh, sort of started the whole behavioral economics movement, there was a push uh, to publish in mainstream economics journals, to not have their own behavioral economics uh, journals, to, to basically make economics behavioral rather than create sort of a, a subfield. Um, and, and it's not clear how much progress has been made in that regard. There have definitely been a lot of papers published in top, top economics journals that are behavioral in nature, but there also has been the creation of this subfield as well, which I think Thaler would talk about as sort of a necessary intermediate step towards economics overall becoming more behavioral. So one of the papers that we're going to talk about in just a few minutes is about your work with umpires, and you had mentioned to me, we, had, we were just talking, can you get tenure, can you succeed as an academic by doing what Wharton Moneyball is about, which is really the interface, if you'd like, between statistics and sports or statistics and business types of problems. Um, and you mentioned that the paper is going to appear in Econometrica. How important... Well, I should say it's under R&R Econometrica. So. Okay. Well, it's it's made... Well, as we know, at Econometrica, that's 90% mm-hmm. of the game. Um, how important is it for you to have this work kind of get this seal of approval of the, I would say, you know, top flight economists, because Econometrica is not messing around. They're not just saying, oh, you know, we like Aton or, wow, baseball's kind of interesting. Let's just publish this paper. That's not, that's not how it's going to work. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's supremely important. I, I got a lot of advice in my early career not to do sports. Um, but I think there have been a couple of things that have, have turned that. So the, the data in sports is just sufficiently rich that you can ask and answer questions that you can't in many other data sets. And I think this this umpire's paper that we'll talk about it is, is a good example of that. Um, and so I think it, it's turning. Nobody's interested um, in sports analytics per se. And I'm not interested in sports a- analytics per se as, as a research avenue. I, I am just as a hobby. Um, but the, the opportunity to ask economic questions, questions about judgment, decision-making, about expert behavior that just happened to be in a sports context, I think, is allowed for by the richness of the data. So I'm definitely going to dive into that. When you talk about umpires, I'm going to say if we replace the word umpire with, you know, an experienced manager, what would the, you know, in some sense, how does your work translate to something more generalized? Well, I'll definitely want to dive into that. Well, maybe let's, let's not skirt around it. So could you tell our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball what you've done uh, with work on umpires? And, you know, uh, it, there are a lot of people that would say, I don't even know why we still have umpires. Why don't we just have a machine tell us whether they're balls and strikes? I'd but be one of those people saying I, that. You, well, you, not, you would be saying it. You've said it many times yeah. here on Wharton Moneyball. But could you tell us about the work on umpires? Let's just start with what was the hypothesis or what was the theory you were trying to test? Yeah, so I mean, well, let's just start off. It's a it's a very simple setting. You know, pitcher throws a pitch, batter chooses not to swing. Uh, the umpire is a simple directive. If the pitch is inside this box, they're supposed to call a strike. Otherwise, they're supposed to call a ball. And so there's incredibly rich data that you can use to simply evaluate how good our umpire is at abiding by that directive. And one of the things that you'll find is that, well, they're not good in a particular way. So the strike zone that they actually enforce varies dramatically with the count. So 3-0 count, three balls and zero strikes, count that favors the batter. You have a huge strike zone. So pitches that you would think of as close are almost always strikes. 0-2, you have a really small strike zone. So pitches that are close are almost always balls in that count. And then just, so, just to interrupt for one second, since I'm an effect size kind of guy, how big an effect are we talking about? Are we talking about two inches, six inches? I mean, it's not like a foot. It's not like they're calling a ball that's a foot outside, that's right. no, even no, no, at 3-0. So it's a couple of inches is what we're talking about in terms of an effect. Yeah, so basically there's a band that's about six to eight inches wide around the boundary of the official strike zone, a little bit wider, but coincident at the top and the bottom. Uh, 
that basically goes from the 10% um, ring to the 90% ring, a 10% chance of a strike to a 90% chance of a strike. So it's really in that band that we see all the movement between counts. I see. And do you also look also, before we get back to what your theory was and what you were testing, do you guys look at are some umpires better at, let's call it, false positive versus false negatives? Well, so basically... All umpires do the behavior that I described, expanding the strike zone when the count favors the batter and contracting it when it favors the pitcher to more or less the same degree. And can umpires be, this is the classic thing when someone notices a, let's call it some sort of behavioral, I don't call it anomaly, but behavioral pattern, can umpires be trained out of it? Well, the argument is that they're kind of trained into this. Ah, so tell what what is the argument there? Well, so so let me just start with yeah. what I think you naturally expect when you see these data, which is what I expected when I saw them initially five years ago, and that is they're biased. They're clearly revealing an aversion to making, say, the more pivotal call. Mm-hmm. So you give an umpire a choice between calling a fourth ball and a first strike. If they're kind of unsure, maybe they'll you know err on the side of calling a strike of. Extending the extending, essentially extending the at-bat. Yeah, so I was convinced by that explanation initially. In fact, I wrote that paper. It was my job market paper. I'm here because I presented that paper, and people hired me based on that that uh, argument. In fact, other people made that argument well, as well, uh, coterminously. Um, but it's wrong. At least I think so now. So, okay, so what's, yeah, what's your updated theory? Okay, so imagine that you're an umpire. You're crouched behind the catcher. The pitcher throws a pitch 95 miles an hour. It comes in close. You have to say whether it's inside a box that you can't see. So it's a pretty difficult thing to do. But let's make it even harder. Let's imagine that you blink right when the pitch comes. So you have no idea where it was. What do you do? So maybe you flip a coin in your head. If it comes up heads, you call ball. If it comes up tails, you call strike. But you could probably do a lot better than this. In fact, you can do better if you make the call that you expect. So if you expect the pitch to have been thrown inside the strike zone when the batter chooses not to swing, that is when you have to make a call, then you should call a strike. Otherwise, you should call a ball. Just so I, just for our listeners out there, I kind of know the title of your paper. But and is, is that sorry? Go oh, ahead. Shane. I was just going to clarify: is that expectation based entirely on the count, or is that what is that ba- expectation it, it based should, on? It should be based on any number of factors that change your expectations. Um, but a big one is the count, as I'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, the point I was just going to bring up is since we're you're, you're, you cannot be in a room with two people that are more Bayesian than the yeah. two of us here, and so uh, as statisticians. So just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, and again, if you want to join the conversation, we're here with Assistant Professor Aton Green from our Operations Information and Decisions Department. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. So just the simple application of Bayes' rule, if you'd like, for our listeners, you have a prior belief, prior expectation. In this case, let's say I'll use your example, Aton, you blink. So I now have no data. There's no likelihood to update. So therefore, the rational thing to do is just to use the prior. In other words, there's nothing to update. Is that the premise that, just for what you've told me so far, is that the premise I should be thinking of in my head? Yeah, exactly. If you have no information to go on, you should go on your expectations or your prior beliefs. Okay. Um, Okay, so imagine the situation in which you observe the pitch, so you don't blink, but your vision is imperfect and the pitch is fast and this box is unseen, and so your information is noisy in some sense. You don't have a perfect sense of exactly where that pitch crossed. Uh, the region on you know on which the official strike zone is defined, and so what should you do? You should be a Bayesian, which is to say that you should combine your prior expectations about where that pitch was likely to have been thrown with your noisy observation of what you actually saw. 
well. You should basically average those two together according to Bayes' rule, just this simple statistical uh, rule. And so, now, just a quick question, yeah. since um, I'm going to get a little, I, I don't say technical for our fans here, but you know, the magic question when people combine a prior belief and an observation is how much weight to put on the prior. So as you know, all, let's say, even at 3-0, and I have an 80% belief that it's going to be a strike. Okay, well, in some sense, is it 8 out of 10, 80 out of 100? So how do you think about how much weight to put on the prior belief versus the noisy observation that comes in on the pitch? Yeah, I mean, it's a function of how much noise is in that observation. Um, but so I, uh, what, what we do is we basically write down a model uh, in which we imbue these umpires with prior beliefs that are rational. So we can't observe the beliefs that they have in their head, but we can say, what if they had perfectly rational beliefs? That is, what if their beliefs about where the pitch was likely to be thrown, conditional on the batter choosing not to swing, is coincident with the distribution of pitches? So yeah. that's my question. Yeah. That was my question. So you're assuming, I just want to make sure we're assuming everything. We're assuming, I don't want, it's not without being overly technical here, that there's one distribution of pitches for which the umpire forms a prior. In other words, there aren't And all mixed umpires have the same prior. That's, that's what I was going to ask, too. Right. Yeah. So basically, if you build a model in which you just imbue them with what I'll call a rational expectations prior, that is not specific to the count. So it's just the unconditional distribution of pitches when the batter chooses not to swing. That doesn't buy you anything. That doesn't explain this behavior of the... Yeah, so let me just jump in here for our listeners. Yeah. So, because we're getting a little technical, but not really. We're, we're saying this in English, which I think makes sense. What Aton is saying is, let's us make, let's assume we make an assumption, which he's proven is not true, that umpires just use the overall distribution. Like, forget the count. What's how likely is this pitch to be a strike? It just doesn't explain the data. So you have a hypothesis. In this case, it's refuted by the data, which is that things aren't conditional on the count. Or that, in some sense, it's not even condi- that umpires have maybe the same distribution, and you've refuted that because the data doesn't support it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So maybe it's worth backing up here and just explaining the intuition. Yeah, so, please. So, what is the intuition behind being Bayesian, and how does that generate this change in the strikes and the umpires enforce with the count? Okay, so imagine that we're in a count that favors the batter, so three balls and zero strikes. So, what should the umpire rationally expect in this count? Well, what's the pitcher going to do? The pitcher is going to try to groove one knowing that the batter's not going to swing. And so if you're the umpire and you're unsure where the pitch is thrown, you should lean on your expectations about where that pitch was likely to be thrown, given that the batter chose not to swing, which is probably right in the middle of the strike zone. Now, if you think about the reverse situation, zero balls and two strikes, so a count that favors the pitcher, uh, so what is the pitcher trying to do in this count? Well, the pitcher is probably trying to get the Paint batter the to edge, chase. Yeah. That's, yeah. Or, or, even, or I mean, throw it, it outside the strike zone and yeah. make the guy swing in a bad pitch. That's right. That's right. If in the case that he throws it in the middle of the strike zone, well, the batter is clearly going to swing. And so when you just think in your head about that distribution of pitch locations when the batter chooses not to swing in 0-2, all the mass is basically on the outside. There's no mass in the middle because the batter is swinging at all those pitches, and besides, the pitcher is not even trying to throw there. Uh, and so, so when you think about, you know, the umpire being unsure about where a pitch was in O2, if he sees that the pitch is close, he should probably think twice to himself and wonder, was it really there, given my expectations that the pitcher was trying to throw it outside and that the batter would swing at anything All right, close. so I have a whole series of questions, but I, and I don't know if you've looked at this, but let me just throw out some questions. That If this were a job talk, here were questions I would ask you. Great. So, uh, number one. Is it possible that there could be auxiliary measures? You just mentioned maybe the umpire thinks twice. Well, we kind of know in, st- in marketing, 
let's imagine I had latency measures. So how long does the umpire take to actually make the call? That could be an observation. That could be a proxy for he's thinking about this more deeply. Has anyone ever looked at the time it takes to make a call and says, maybe this is some evidence that the umpire's integrating information or he or sh- he's near the boundary? Yeah, I mean, so no, because those data don't exist. So there aren't there are data that show the timestamp of each pitch, but we don't have data on how long it took from the catcher catching the balls of the umpire. But the conceptually, call. what I'm saying is not the dumbest thing in the world. If one had latency information, one could try to use that to try to understand the mental process of the umpire. Perhaps. My argument as to what the umpires are doing is that they're not explicitly Bayesian. Like, they are not calculating Bayes' rule in their head. None of us are. Yeah. But they've developed some kind of intuitive heuristic that approximates this process. Okay. Mm-hmm. Do umpires realize it's a long game? They've got a lot of pitches to call. And in some sense, you know, all right, so, you know, if I blow the 3-0 call with nobody on base and two outs, you know what? Eh, not that big a deal. I know I only have a finite amount of brain power and attention as an umpire, and I'm going to focus my efforts when it really matters. So you could look, do pitches in high leverage situations, do they tend to get called more accurately than pitches in lower leverage situations? Or do we know anything about that? That's certainly we could look at. Yeah, I think accuracy is a tough thing to go on because it, there are deviations uh, between the strike zone the umpires enforce regardless of the count and the official strike zone. And so it, it's not clear that they're trying to maximize accuracy as defined by the official strike zone. It seems like they have a box that's slightly slightly different in their head. But one thing that you can do is you can basically say, you know, does the strike zone that umpires enforce, say, in a 3-0 count, change with different factors that impact the leverage, like whether there's a man on first base? The answer is no. If you look at the enforced strike zone in O2 with, you know, zero outs or one out versus O2 with two outs. So here you have a higher leverage situation. Strike three ends not just the at-bat but the inning. Uh, no change in the strikes and the umpires enforce. So what seems to be consistent is it's the count that's driving this behavior and not other factors that impact the leverage. Hmm. Again, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen and, and our colleague Aton Green. We're here on Wharton Moneyball on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. If you have a question about, for Aton about umpiring or any of his research, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, so... <clears throat> You mentioned earlier that basically all umpires are the same in the sense that they all have this kind of like deviation depending on the count. Like they really kind of change their strike zone depending on the count. I've at least read elsewhere that there is also differences between umpires just in terms of the strike zone that they actually enforce. That's true. Um, and is that consequential enough? Like if you were to fit a more co- complicated model where you say, for example, an umpire had their own prior expectations that were different from the other, that weren't shared by the other umpires would it be you know i guess more would it fit the data even better or would it not really be consequential yeah i don't know i mean so so it's hard what we could do is you could try to estimate uh, umpire specific expectations by yeah. just looking at the pitches that they've seen uh, the problem is you actually run out of data so you know, this is a circumstance in which you'd think that you have as much data as you could possibly want. There are millions of 
pitches and millions of calls made over the observation window that we're looking at. But you slice it by the 70 or so umpires that you see, and it just becomes very difficult to form these count-specific expectations. Yeah. Uh, but one thing I should mention is that these deviations between or across umpires and the strike zone that they enforce are just swamped by the size of the deviations uh, between counts. Right. Okay. So yeah. let me just j- illustrate yeah, this. Give us an this. idea of yeah. how big an effect yeah. we're talking about and how, as you're pointing out, like O2 versus 3.0, that might be, I'm making it up, on a, that might be a six inch, eight inch difference on this ring around the strike zone, but you know the difference between umpires is really like a half an inch or an inch. So, what's the relative effect size? As yeah, we're talking so, about? okay. So the the strike zone that umpires enforce in three O is fifty eight percent larger than what they enforce in O two. It's fifty eight percent, and if you imagine a pitch, do you mean by area? I by, mean by area. By area. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're basically just drawing a boundary that effectively separates locations where they call strikes on average from locations where they call balls on average. And those two boundaries are different. One is 58% larger in 3.0 than, than And in should, our, should our listeners be thinking it's a symmetric top, bottom, left, right? Or is that, I hate to say it this way, that's like you could fit a more complicated model then, but it would be a second or third order effect. So um, it's it's a little asymmetric. So it basically coincides with the top and bottom of the official strike zone in, in zero zero. So in zero zero in the baseline count, they're basically at the top and bottom. It's not rectangular. It's uh, kind of an, a weird ellipse, um, and it depends on the handedness of the batter. So uh, basically, for both right and left-handed batters, they're calling outside pitches strikes more often than they're calling inside pitches. Uh, but it's more egregious for left-handed batters for reasons that I, I can't explain. I think it has to do with how they how the umpire sets up behind the catcher. I was going to ask you that. What's the role of the umpire's positioning and his ability to you know yeah. see where the pitch is actually going? Yeah, I believe that that uh, positioning is asymmetric, and this is from a, a minor league umpire I talk with. Um, but that's as much information as I have. Um, but just one more point yeah. about how big the, the disparity is. So imagine a pitch right at the top of the official strike zone, right in the middle. So this is right at the letters, uh, right in the middle of the chest, um, and right in the middle of home plate. So 0-0 zero, zero count, first pitch of the at-bat, it's basically a 50-50 call. Umpire flips a coin in his head. Um, 3-0, it's almost always a strike, and 0-2, it's almost always a ball. So we're going from a coin flip to deterministic in either direction. Hmm. Wow. So yeah. let me ask you a related question. Um Let's imagine we had infinitely rational pitchers. Could you start to study whether pitchers know this? And therefore, you know, let's take the next implication of yeah. this, which is, all right, so let's, I mean, I know as a behavioral economist you study this, like how many steps ahead could would the pitcher have to be thinking to be able to take this information into account? Do we have any evidence that pitchers kind of know this? Well, so this is the part that really blew my mind. So... Uh, I'm not sure how much game theory the, the our audience wants to get into, but the, the high-level summary is that this behavior is not only individually rational on the part of umpires, but is rational in the sense that it is... Yeah, tell us in what sense it's rational. It is the best response in a game in which pitchers and batters are also acting strategically with correct beliefs about what the umpire is going to do. But what's the objective function that they're trying to maximize here? Like, if the umpire is rational, like, I understand what it means to be rational if I'm trying to maximize profits. I understand. What is the objective? Like, what's the ra- – the, the umpire is trying to do the best job to maximize what? Accuracy? Like, yeah, some sense of okay. accuracy. Exactly. I see. I see. Okay. And so can you tell us um, – I'm very interested, and I'm sure our listeners would be too. Where have you present? I mean, I know you said you've. this is an academic paper, but, like – 
Have you gone to Major League Baseball and presented this? Have you presented this to teams? What's been the reaction? Like, is everyone embracing you and saying, Aton, we knew this. Thank you for telling us this. Or has the reaction been not another egghead person from academia presenting some paper? Like, who's your audience for this work? Outside of, of course, academia. Because if it's published in Econometrica, lots of people are interested. Yeah, big if at this point. Um, but- I said if, I, but let's <laughs> let's put away the academic audience for yep. a second. Who else do you think would be interested in this work? Right. So I, I presented a version of this years ago at the MIT uh, Sloan Sports Conference. Yeah, which we talk about quite often on our show here. Right. And so that was really just about the effect without trying to piece apart what the interpretation is. Um, and, you know, back then, this was like 2000. Uh, 14, I want to say, something like that. Um, you know, there was a big disparity in terms of analytic uh, awareness on the part of baseball clubs. So there were some clubs who came up to me afterwards and said, yeah, we know this and we're trying to sort of figure out how we can use it, but we have this big problem whereby, you know, our managers really just don't have any appetite for analytics. And then there were other teams that were like, whoa, you know, this is this is nuts. So we never even thought to look at the the umpire. I mean, from a baseball perspective, like if you're if you're the pitcher or the batter and you're thinking about how to take advantage of, uh, you know, uh, what the umpire may be doing differently in different counts, um, that that priority has got to be like, I don't know, at least seventh on your priority list. You have so many other things that you're thinking about beforehand. And these people have limited brain space um, just because they're human. Right. So. I, I think it's it's sort of hard to expect that that audience would try to consume this in a way that would would help their team on the field. Um, you know, I think more generally, a lot of people are interested in how people with a lot of experience, experts in particular, make decisions. Uh, big movement in behavioral economics as there are all these biases out here. We have a case of, you know, highly experienced, highly selective uh, individuals, experts who are doing things more or less by the rational model in a pretty impressive way. So, no, but- I mean, I think it's a, it's a great substrate for sort of exploring some of these kind of behavioral economics because you do. I, I think it's rare that you have situations in in, in life where you kind of have a lot of data coming in on something that is at least you can talk about the correct outcome oh you know the correct outcome is actually defined you know in a a very tangible way it's nuts where where else does somebody make hundreds of decisions per day and they don't know what the correct outcome is yet we as the observer know exactly what they should have done so let me ask a question how do you turn this in our last like five or so minutes here how do you turn this into a research stream or career? Because as you know, when you come up for tenure, it's not just as Aton have a lot of papers, but Aton's an expert in X. And so how do you turn this paper that you're working on to a huge research stream? Is it that you now have assembled an interesting data set and there's lots of things you could look at with this data set? Or are you interested, are you going to broaden out into sports? Are you going to go deep with this data? Or are you going to kind of broaden out and you'll be known as the behavioral economist that does work with sports? No, I hope not. I mean, I'm not particularly interested in baseball. I find it to be kind of boring. Maybe I shouldn't admit that on this show. No, it's I, all right. Uh, it's all right. It's the all data right. are If Kate was still here, he'd be nodding, I think. It, uh, yeah, yeah I, I try. I try to watch. I can't even watch it at the gym. Um, so how do you write a paper on a topic and immerse yourself? And you seem, let me just say, just from our my cursory discussion with you for the last 25 minutes, you seem to have learned a fair amount about the sport. Are you not a huge well, baseball I, fan? No, I, I was a fan growing up. Oh, okay. I, I feel like the baseball's become boring as it's become distilled into what are they called, the essential outcomes, you know, walk, home run, strikeout. Yeah, um, I've been kind of talking about this a little bit too. I'm kind of, I mean, I, I don't, baseball is still very interesting to me, but 
I, I kind of agree. Like as as we've kind of gotten to more of these sort of like lart like either strikeout or home run. I mean, a big part of what makes baseball interesting to me is the suspense that builds up as you slowly accumulate. Um, you know, chance to score runs, and that's all about men on base and and et cetera, et cetera. And we and we've kind of gone. A, the sport has gone away from this concept of men on base. Essentially, it's well, either strikeout or home run. Well, I could allow you to ask another question, but we have a caller. Uh, so, Matt, Matt from Florida, uh, you're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm here with my co-host Shane Jensen. Of course, we have our guest today, Aton Green. So, you have a question for Aton? Yes, thank you very much for taking the call. Um, I I, I got to tell you, I'm I'm, I'm infatuated by by the uh, discussion and. I'm a big sports fan, but I'm also, um, I, I, you know, I love every part of business, especially decision-making and how to reach the customer. And I, I look at business in a large sense as the customer is the umpire. They're the ones that are going to decide your fate. So it, it's very difficult when you look at data to, take, to make um, one, profile, one profile decision as a whole. How do, you, um, how, how do you normalize out the preconceived notions of the umpire versus the reputation of the pitcher versus the reputation of the hitter? and all the rest of the variables, and what does that skew the results overall? Well, first of all, Matt, thank you for your call. That's, it's a great question. Like, how do you take away all these other factors? So how, how do you do it? Yeah, uh, uh, admittedly by ignoring them. So it should be the case that if you have a batter who is particularly discerning, has a much better eye, then the beliefs that the umpire should have are, are probably very different, right? Um, but there's just not enough data, as I mentioned before, to basically imbue the umpire with beliefs that are specific to the pitcher or specific to the batter, if you have Greg Maddox on the mound, you know, he's much better at painting the corners, and that should tell you that a close pitch, well, maybe it's closer to being a strike than you would otherwise uh, think, you know, given the count. Um, another interesting uh, extension is thinking about, well, why did the batter not swing? So the the implication or the assumption in this model is the batter is not swinging because they're thinking this pitch is not that close to being a strike. Um, but imagine that you have a Roldis Chapman on the mound and he throws a 110-mile-an-hour pitch and the batter just can't get the bat off of his shoulders. And so if you're an umpire and you see, you know, pitch right down the middle in 0-2 and the batter didn't swing, well, the batter didn't swing probably because he couldn't catch up to that pitch, not because he thought it was a ball. Right. And so you should probably have different prior beliefs uh, about, you know, about where that pitch is likely to be thrown. Could you tell us maybe in the last minute or two we have, um, what's the next project you're working on that might be sports-related? What would be something else that our listeners, like, you know, and when we have you back in a month, two months back on the show, what will you be telling us that you're working on or have completed? Yeah, I'm not going to give away too much information, but I'm looking at the favorite long shot bias in horse racing markets. So not sure how many people are familiar with this. Could you just say what the bias is? Yeah, so basically you go to the track and there are horses with long odds, long shots, and there are horses with short odds, favorites. Uh, Mike, we may be having a race coming up this Saturday as an example that might have a favorite, like the horse Justify that won the first two legs of the Triple Crown, and there's certainly some long shots in the race at the Belmont. Yep, that's right. And so it it turns out that if you bet on a a favorite. You bet a buck on a favorite, you get back about 85 cents on average. If you bet a buck on a long shot, say 30 to 1, you get about 55 cents back on average. So that that's weird. Those are out of balance. Why would people bet on long shots when they can make more money betting on favorites? And so there have basically been two explanations that have been offered. The first is that, well, you know, people are risk averse in most walks of life, but when they walk into the track, suddenly they become super risk loving. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, that's one explanation. The other is this explanation from prospect theory from behavioral economics, originally from Kahneman and Tversky, uh, that people overweight small probabilities. So we don't really have a way of conceiving of a 1% chance, and so we kind of round it up to three. 
Um, yeah, then I'll, all of a sudden, that long shot doesn't see, that seems like a good bet. Yeah. yeah. What I'll say is I think both those explanations are wrong. Well, this will definitely have yeah. to have you back when this research has uh, either seen the light of day or more public because we actually um, – it's an interesting uh, – that first of all, it's an interesting – another interesting way to test, as you're saying, alternative explanations. If you could have that all wrapped up by the next Kentucky Derby, that would be very convenient <laughs> that, for that, us. That, that would be, it's a deal. Yeah. That would be great. Well, Aton, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. My pleasure. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.